This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA for the week ending March 17, 2017, the St. Patrick's Day edition. In this wide-ranging episode, Jay Rosen and I take a look at culture and ethics. We consider the ban sought on the former J.P. Morgan bankers who ran the Prinsling program by the Federal Reserve Bank, the British cycling scandal as editorialized in the Financial Times, Uber culture culprit governance, Petavesa begins to investigate its own corruption. We consider the raid by German prosecutors into the offices of Jones Day in Germany around their, their investigation of the Volkswagen emissions fraud scandal. I preview next week's podcast on the FCPA Compliance Report and announce an exciting new podcast. Jay Rosen gives us a preview of his weekend report. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to This Week in FCPA for the week ending St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, 2017. I guess this should be the St. Patrick's Day edition. So as always, though, I'm joined by my co-host and cohort, Jay Rosen. Jay, welcome. Good morning, Tom. How are things going in Houston? It is a lovely day here. So uh, looking forward to a a good podcast, a good day, and a good weekend. So uh, we had uh, several really interesting things come up perhaps a little more ethics and culture related than FCPA related, but I thought it would give us a really a good chance to talk about uh, corporate culture in the context of uh, several different corporations and events uh, recently, Jay. So, um, but there were a couple of things that really intrigued me. I have to say uh, this one, um, I read the definition of irony in the dictionary just uh, because this story was so ironic, which is that Venezuela is investigating its national oil company, Petavesa, for corruption. And if that ain't the pot calling the kettle black, I don't know what is, because Petavesa is universally recognized as the most corrupt uh, national energy company. And given some of the energy companies in other parts of the world, that is saying something. Um, so we had, though, And then, of course, Venezuela uh, is in one of the worst economic um, uh, spirals uh, currently going on in the globe, pretty clearly related to the looting of the company from its uh, prior president, Chavez, and his cronies moving forward. But the Venezuelan government is uh, investigating a transaction between PDVSA and a Saudi company called PetroSaudi, which was a $1.3 billion contract for two drill rigs. For those not familiar with the energy industry, a drill rig is a ship that's fitted out with a a drilling platform on it, so you can uh, mobily move from site to site relatively easy, uh, more easily than a jack-up rig, and then drill. The um, contract was, I think, a seven-year contract for the two they had a uh, uh, you do these by what's called a day rate or day drilling rate, and the contracts were for four hundred and eighty five thousand per day. Uh, the thing that really stuck out was that at the time the contracts were signed, the drilling day rate for comparable uh, drill ships was two hundred and 
60,000, or excuse me, 230,000 per day. So quite an uplift in price paid. The other thing was that these drill ships uh, were not modern uh, new ships by any stretch of the imagination. One was constructed in 1977 and the other in 1983. And uh, I can tell you that there have been several innovations in drilling since that time uh, and in drill ship <laughs> construction. Um, but the um, uh, gist of it is that the Venezuelan government is investigating uh, five Petro, uh, PETAVESA employees uh, who allegedly may have pocketed some of this excessive amount of charges for these two um, drill ships. Jay, this is all wrapped up in the context of an international arbitration in London where PETAVESA is trying to avoid paying on the contract with uh, Petro Saudi. They have not uh, alleged uh, any allegations uh, or any facts against Petro Saudi as yet. Um, but if somebody receives a bribe, well, it might be logical to conclude that someone has paid that bribe. So I think uh, this one, we're going to have to watch this one. Um, when one of the most corrupt countries in the world starts investigating uh, its own national energy company, which is one of the most corrupt, if not the most corrupt, I think uh, it really shows that uh, things uh, would change. So um, I found that one uh, fairly interesting. The, um, Let me jump in for one sec. One okay. of my favorite lines here is it says, um, the company was so corrupt that middle-level managers were reported to demand Rolex watches to schedule meetings. Talk about tone at the middle. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. And um, um, it, uh, the definition of irony, I did look that up. It is a manner of organizing work so as to give full expression to contradictory impulses. And uh, if this isn't contradictory, uh, I'm not quite sure what is. Uh, we had some uh, new information uh, come out on the uh, J.P. Morgan um, Princeling Sons and Daughters program, and that was actually out of the U.S. Federal Reserve, Jay. Uh, the Federal Reserve said that it would seek fines and permanent bans of two former managing directors at J.P. Morgan, Asia Pacific Limited, uh, Timothy Fletcher, and a fellow named Fang Fang, that's F-A-N-G, capital F-A-N-G, who ran the Sons and Daughters program. Uh, the Fed is seeking to ban them from work uh, in in this industry, and then uh, Mr. Fang is uh, the uh, Fed is seeking a fine of one million dollars from him and five hundred thousand from Mr. Fletcher. So uh, more negative information about J.P. Morgan. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see if these two executives try to claim that uh, you know they were just the bag men here, that higher ups approved it, and where all this may go. So uh, I think one to watch, but um, that uh, program, I think, is going to be in the news for some time going forward. And, and another piece just to kind of um, connect the dots over the last year is this is the third in three cases that all have to deal with um, internships or princelings. And in addition to J.P. Morgan, uh, BNY Mellon uh, settled for $14.8 million with the SEC, and Qualcomm settled also with the SEC for $7.5 million. So if there's ever any question to, you know, quote, anything of value, this um, whole, um, you know, uh, category of cases has proved that giving somebody an internship or, 
you know, uh, you know, why, while that may not be, uh, you know, the person getting paid, we have established that there is a, a transaction that there is definitely value tied to giving uh, a relative or giving somebody employment at your company um, per the spreadsheets that JT Mor- JP Morgan directly led to revenue for the company. Well, and I guess the only thing I would add, Jay, is, uh, or the caveat I would add perhaps, is that if the candidate is fully qualified, then uh, I think you can still consider uh, such a candidate. Uh, the problem in all three of these cases was that the candidates were not qualified uh, and or, uh, and in the case of Morgan, they were specifically targeted because of the business that the family members could send to the firm. So um, it's a uh, high risk, certainly, but with any high risk proposition, if you put an appropriate risk management structure around that in place, uh, you still can can move forward. And that's really one of the key Uh, I think ingredients of a compliance program is a compliance program would allow you to engage in high risk activity if you manage that risk appropriately. So um, a a lesson around uh, compliance. Jay, um, today in the New York Times, there was a story that I think um, really is going to impact uh, certainly your friends in your former life as Mr. Translations. and law firms who engage in international FCPA investigations and indeed a wide range of other investigations outside the United States. Jack Ewing and Bill Vlasic reported that German authorities raided Jones Day um, uh, to obtain records about Jones Day investigation into Volkswagen's uh, defeat device emissions fraud uh, testing uh, scandal. And I cannot really think of anything equivalent happening in the United States. Um, law firm privilege, attorney work product privilege are really sacrosanct unless the attorneys are involved in, in a conspiracy or a criminal act. That is not uh, the allegation here. This was simply just to obtain their files. So the um, German law is, uh, how can I say this, uh, more fluid on privileges than uh, the United States law, and there was uh, apparently court order granting this, so there was appropriate, at least a, uh, uh, you know, some something of due process where a court reviewed a prosecutor's application and granted a, a search warrant, but um, the rules on lawyer-client privilege are less absolute in Germany, and it is uh, unusual for prosecutors to seize documents but um, they can do it. And this is in the context of a broader prosecutorial effort in Germany by German prosecutors. They've searched Audi headquarters as well last week. Um, And one of the things that I think German prosecutors are concerned about, and Volkswagen, frankly, has received some criticism, is the Volkswagen's steadfast denial that anyone at the board level was involved or even knew about this, and the senior management level. And uh, it's not clear if the internal investigation would have or has evidence to show that. Um, If there is such evidence, um, 
and Jones Day or Volkswagen has buried it, it's going to look very, very uh, poorly. Indeed, the the Times article said, um, if so, it would be a blow to Jones Day reputation while raising the possibility of new revelations that could further, further tarnish Volkswagen. But for any law firm who does FCPA investigations, and I would just emphasize that the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act means foreign, you're going to have an a outside the U.S. component because that's where the bribe is going to be paid. You are not going to have a bribe paid to a foreign government official inside the United States. And most of the law firms, certainly many of those that you've dealt with in the past, Jay, had international locations. Uh, and that's one of the reasons you would go to one of those firms. And you can name the blue chip firm. They've got an office outside the United States. And if those records are now subject to even with a court order seizure, um, that that could really be a big game changer going forward. So um, I know I've spat out, uh, spat out a lot of uh, kind of lawyer analysis. What uh, what are your thoughts on this, Jay? Sorry, Tom. I was on mute. <laughs> can you can you hear me now? Uh, yeah, now that you're unmuted. Okay, so I was saying. Um, oh, wait a minute. It's not like three the... seconds, so I know where to edit. Okay, so what are your thoughts, Jay? So um, I'm I'm not sure if this is exactly falls under irony, but um, as we often discuss with our colleague Jonathan Armstrong, there are very um, stringent data privacy laws coming out of the EU. And I think on one hand, if you have the uh, EU and one of the chief members of it is Germany, if they're supporting uh, data privacy, how can you do that on one hand and then on the other hand, ignore the attorney-client privilege? So uh, I think it sets up a very uh, interesting duality there. And to your point earlier, um, on many of these global investigations that I worked with on a translation perspective. Um, you're absolutely right that you have the data uh, lying in uh, non-U.S. jurisdictions, and sometimes uh, there are a lot of accommodations that need to be made to, uh, to translate that data, to work with that data, and make sure it doesn't come here to the U.S. So I, I think... Uh, this really uh, bears watching over the next few weeks, and um, I think it portends for the rest of the uh, the auto industry that this uh, this um, these investigations are not going away. Um, I think it's you know they're probably ongoing at other European um, car manufacturers and, and potentially even some of the U.S. manufacturers that may be foreign owned. So I guess Jay, being a recovering trial lawyer, uh, I'm really concerned about this um, raiding lawyers' offices. 
and the information that they're going to obtain because uh, a report is fact-based, but it's lawyer interpretation. And the, one of the reasons you put out a report is to put your spin on it. You, If you were just going to put out the facts, you'd simply put out the, the, the documents without any interpretation. But um, every report is interpretive by its own nature, uh, simply the fact of typing it up. So a lawyer's thought process going into a report and uh, putting facts in in certain lights is is uh, something that uh, is done on a regular basis. So this this could be very troubling um, for law firms. I think the reporters Ewing and Vlasic are absolutely right. If something comes out uh, of this out of Jones Day's files that has not been released to the public, either U.S. authorities or German authorities, uh, the law firm could be in for a very black eye. And um, one of the things that makes the self-disclosure investigative um, uh, structure work is trust between the prosecutors and these uh, blue chip law firms that they are going to thoroughly investigate and they are going to turn over facts. And if you don't have that trust from the prosecutors, uh, it's going to be uh, really difficult um, to have the whole system work uh, as at least it's worked uh, since uh, 2004 or so. So uh, I think we're going to have to watch this one. If something comes out uh, negative, uh, different than Volkswagen has previously disclosed, they're going to have a, a lot of splaining to do, as my daughter would say to me. So um, uh, really interesting. Um, now let's turn so to uh, something that um, I use every time I travel. Um, it is something that I have found provides a superior customer experience, a uh, adequate to superior employee experience, and makes the company a ton of money. And when you have those three things aligned, uh, I think you have something that's pretty good, but it may turn out that that's not quite true. And Jay, I'm talking about Uber, the um, uh, phone, excuse me, the uh, ride sharing app. And some some fairly negative information has uh, come out over the past few weeks about Uber. It really started, I think, with the uh, Trump's first Muslim ban, where there was a um, um, boycott at JFK of taxi cabs because many cab drivers in New York City and surrounding areas uh, are either first generation or immigrants and first generation Americans or immigrants. Uh, Uber uh, broke that, uh, being, of course, non-union. They broke that and caught a lot of flack for that. Also, the CEO, Travis Kalanick, uh, joined Trump's um, uh, um, advisory board. And so that led to a a delete Uber uh, hashtag campaign on Twitter uh, for some period of time. Uh, And then there was a blog post I think about two weeks ago, of a former female Uber engineer who went public with her mm-hmm. account of sexual harassment and rampant sexism within the company. She described that uh, not only did HR ignore her complaints, w- which included being propositioned by the man she worked for, but they said that he was a high producer, so uh, he wasn't going to be touched. And that's really antithetical to uh, everything the EOC stands for and modern employment law. And then it kind of ended with uh, what can only be termed an unflattering video 
where the aforementioned uh, Mr. Kalanick berated an Uber driver uh, who was taking him on a ride, uh, share a uh, fair ride, after the driver told him he'd been forced to declare bankruptcy from his losses of working at Uber. And Kalanick said, um, sorry, I hope your daughters aren't listening here. Some people don't <laughs> like to take responsibility for their own shit. They blame everything in their life on someone else. I guess we lose our PG rating today. Um, so is that the kind of, you know, CEO you want to have? And, and Jay, it really raised for me some questions about, um, corporate governance. And I'd really like to, to put a couple of questions to you because, uh, in a prior life you did work in the corporate world. And so you've seen multiple corporate cultures and in governance, uh, many startups have a new, uh, structure in place that's different from typical public companies. You have the owners, founders, or the first generation of uh, VC investors, and they get super, super stock options, something like 10 to 1 voting rights. Then uh, regular investors come in and get uh, 1 to 1 voting rights. Employees are typically, some part of their compensation is stock options with, of course, the uh, the pot at the end of the rainbow being when they go public, so that they're incentivized to stick around and really not change things. Uh, that's all. Uh, a, a very long-winded way of saying is Mr. Kalanick somebody who could run a fifty million dollar public company. Uh, is the culture there so toxic that uh, it really can't be changed while he's he's running it? Conversely, if he's not there, does Uber le- lose its Uberness? and stop being the company that I started off talking about, which was a superior customer experience, at least an adequate employee experience, and one that makes money hand over fist. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it, it, it's kind of troubling that uh, you wonder how much more digging do you have to do and what's going to come out. And one thing you didn't even ad- address is this gray ball program which um, there was a basically uh, code written into their software and there were certain, uh, I guess, regulators who were trying to ride the Uber service and they were basically um, picked up by the software and they never had cars sent to them. So that sounds uh, eerily reminiscent of the emissions control defeat system. So it really, you know, not only about, you know, the, the, the troublesome nature of, uh, you know, the leadership here at this company, but, you know, it's severely gonna, um, put them behind the eight ball in any of these folks. The article goes on to say that, um, you know, two, three months ago, it'd be very hard to get, um, a senior official or a senior engineer to leave Uber because they were waiting for that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and now a recruiter in this story says that a lot of people who are still employed there are valuing their stock options at zero. So, um, you know, uh, it, it's uh, it's going to take a heck of a lot of rehabilitation on the uh, image for Uber right now. And and even if Mr. Kalanick leaves, I don't know, um, you know, to your point, whether or not it loses its Uberness. So, Jay, uh, it seems to me in your past that you had a corporate career that included working for uh, Warner Brothers, 
uh, perhaps uh, Time Warner, and then perhaps even AOL Time Warner. And those were three, uh, I guess you'd call them mergers, but perhaps acquisition is, is also an appropriate word, where you had some very disparate cultures pairing up. And uh, I say from my perspective on the outside, it was, it, if not a disaster, at least didn't work. But what, what did you see in, the, in your corporate background uh, when, you, when you would have an acquisition and you would bring in a major uh, partner or player that, that really had a different culture? How, how does that change or, or really does it not? Um, you know, this was probably the first uh, failed merger of the dot-com era. And uh, AOL at the time was a real high flyer. And uh, they basically, uh, the move was a very smart one, I think, on AOL's part because they had a higher, highly inflated stock currency that they used to buy an old line. And at the time, we'll, sit, we'll call it a bricks-and-mortar business as, uh, you know, what Time Warner was because they printed magazines and they made physical movies. And uh, unfortunately, what came to bear was that uh, once the onion was peeled back on AOL Time Warner, um, there was some very interesting accounting going on at the AOL, and they were selling ads to themselves and booking revenue. Unfortunately, a lot of people, uh, you know, who worked at Warner Brothers for 20 or 30 or 40 years um, had their retirement accounts, uh, you know, just wiped out because at the end, the, the stock became worthless as well. So at that point, there was probably a little bit of nerves and a lot of giddiness that, you know, Warner Brothers or Time Warner had this huge valuation, but the AOL folks, I think, were so busy trying to clean up their own balance sheet and take care of whatever they were doing uh, that there was, um, you know, a, a little bit of a turf war between the movie guys and the print guys. And if you see now, you, know, you come, uh, it's almost 20 years into the future that um, Meredith is circling uh, the the magazine properties. Um, there's a bit on the table now for ATT and DirecTV to buy uh, the movie studio, uh, Warner Brothers. And, um, you know, when we look back at it, there, there was a big wreckage. So um, uh, initially, I think the movie folks thought they could hold off the AOL folks because they understood what was happening from the media and, uh, you know, from their old line businesses. And what happened was uh, the integration never really came together and then kind of, uh, you know, was tucking their heads, uh, you know, a bit between their shoulders. They had to really spin off AOL because AOL ended up being the toxic asset. So I think at first there was uncertainty, then there was trying to come together. And then I think very uh, quickly, uh, the legacy Warner Brother folks figured out that the AOL folks uh, were not the the right partners to uh, you know be in business with. So un- unfortunately, uh, the uh, to extricate itself really, as you said, destroyed, if not the livelihood, certainly the uh, retirement plans and pensions of of many Warner folks, uh, many Time folks, and the um, 
uh, I remember I had a friend who characterized it at the time of the acquisition of, as uh, AOL is not a real company, but they ro- bought a real company based upon a uh, in, uh, an uh, un, uh, a uh, stock value which was not realistic. So um, the uh, actions uh, at that uh, by AOL certainly destroyed. Time Warner in, in many ways, and finally the company was able to extricate itself. But it was years later, and you know, millions of dollars and thousands of lives. So with Uber, though, I'm not quite sure what or who is going to force a change, because Mr. Kalanick and uh, his co-founder hold uh, a huge block of stock, and I don't think that they can be. Uh, uh, Kalanick can be moved out unless he agrees to it. If he stays and becomes, you know, chief idea guy or, or something like that, uh, anytime you have uh, a dynamic founder stick around uh, and move to a CEO position, uh, you're in you're in trouble because you have a split split loyalties, and you're going to have some people that are always going to be loyal to him and always are going to go to him, and. Um, you know, Steve Jobs tried to make it work the first time with Apple, and it didn't work. Uh, and he came back and really had uh, both CEO and um, president positions uh, the second time, learning his lesson. But if if the um, win at all cost attitude uh, continues, the um, uh, difficulty will be if they have to go public, and in going public, they have to have attestations of certain policies and procedures that don't exist or are not effective, um, it's going to devalue the value, uh, devalue the, the price of the stock for the IPO. So it's, I think the company's stuck between a rock and a hard place or Scylla and Charybdis, if you want a uh, mythological reference. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how Uber comes out of it uh, going forward. Uh, you know, you might even compare it to Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos, where uh, she apparently cannot be moved out without her approval. And that company uh, and its investors have suffered greatly. So, Tom, I know you're an avid cyclist. We had uh, one more story that we wanted to talk about from a culture perspective. So did you want to uh, talk about the British cycling thing? So uh, I was really interested. There was an editorial in the Financial Times uh, which struck me, and it talked about the British cycling team, who uh, can only be said to have had great success recently. Two of the, uh, uh, excuse me, four of the past uh, Tour de France winners, past five winners were Brits. Uh, England won 30, uh, 22 of 32, 38 medals at the last three Olympics. Um, it looked to be just a fabulous success, but in late 2016, that um, picture began to change. First, there were uh, disclosures that two-time tour winner Bradley, um, Sir Bradley Wiggins had been given therapeutic use exemptions to receive steroid injections for asthma, which just occurred right before he had big races. Uh, and then there was uh, 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 allegations of a mystery package of drugs delivered uh, during the tour to British coaches, which are never fully explained. Recently, there were instances or allegations of bullying and sexism leveled against the team director. And the, um, the FT had a really interesting uh, way to look at it, I thought. And I have to remember, Jay, that the FT, that's 
almost the equivalent to the Wall Street Journal. So this is uh, Britain's leading financial daily. And to say they are pro-business, um, I don't know how, how much more pro-business they could be, uh, but they are very pro-business. But they said the following. They compared British Cycling to Uber and observed the following. When victory in the market comes before attention to basic processes and standards, trouble follows because success all but guarantees processes will be examined retroactively. And um, what that means is if you don't have a culture of compliance to fall back on, you really don't have anything to fall back on. And that's where Uber seems to find itself now. They don't have the uh, standards and processes which they can utilize uh, to fall back on. Um, it may be because they're such a new company. It may be because they were so successful so fast. It may be the very cult of Travis Kalanick says we're not going to have be tied down by we don't want no stinking policies and uh, processes and procedures. But if you're a U.S. public company, you have to have those. And SOX 404 demands that you have those, and it further demands that you attest that you have those. So um, I thought it was really interesting that the Financial Times would criticize an organization. They were directly talking about British Cycling, but they brought Uber in to, to say that uh, you've got to have processes and standards. And if you don't, uh, if you're successful, uh, you won't have anything to fall back on when uh, when it all hits the fan and people start taking a hard look at you. That was certainly the case of Theranos, and it may be the case at Uber, and uh, something's going to have to give. So I, I think the, uh, the potpourri of things that we uh, spoke about today, um, you know, if, if you want to take a, an underlying current that ties it all together, um, we've looked at a German auto manufacturer. We've looked at a Venezuelan state oil company. We've looked at investment banks and other people uh, giving away internships. And now we've looking at, looked at a company with a very high flying culture that may soon come crashing down. And, you know, the through line between it all is that do these companies uh, have ethics and compliance and, and do they even have an ethical culture? And, uh, one would one would seem to question them all. So uh, in this time where we're still wondering about what's going to happen from an FCPA enforcement perspective, uh, you know, wh wherever the chips fall on that, I, I think we still have established that companies uh, really need to get back to the basics. And if they don't have an ethical underpinning, uh, now would be a great time to uh, start looking into that. Well, Jay, I would uh, like to see if I can maybe uh, uh, bring up a, a new little segment I'd like to uh, start incorporating into This Week in FCPA um, when I can get ahead on my podcast and actually record them more than one week out. Um, I'd like to give a little brief, uh, a brief preview. I've got three very exciting podcasts coming up next week, uh, if I could highlight for the listeners. One is uh, Christy Grant Hart and I debate the certification prong of ISO 3701. Uh, anyone who's read my stuff knows that uh, I think uh, their certification is worse than useless. Uh, Christy, well-known commentator, lover to death, uh, author of How to Be a Wildly Successful Compliance Officer, um, uh, is uh, of the opposite opinion. So we uh, talk about that. Then I have a gentleman named Brandon Essing. Brandon is a... Um, 
former U.S. attorney who's now in private practice. And I visit with him about a very interesting article he wrote in, uh, posted in LinkedIn, where he talked about the uh, Yates memo from the perspective of a line prosecutor and what it meant for him when, uh, as a assistant U.S. attorney, he received the Yates memo and ha- what he had to do to try to figure out how to comply with it. It's, it's rare that we have a look from that side of the fence, so I thought uh, his insights was really interesting. And then finally, Jay, I am inaugurating yet another podcast. Um, I've decided to split out the FCPA compliance report and have an FCPA compliance report um, international edition. It's going to be a little bit broader than the FCPA, um, and I'm going to try to have some international commentators. Obviously, our good friend Jonathan Armstrong uh, will be on it at some point, but I have Carlos Ayers. Carlos is a uh, lawyer in uh, Sao Paulo. And he talks to us about uh, some very interesting developments in the continent of South America, including the uh, uh, agreement by prosecutors from 10 Latin American countries to uh, uh, jointly investigate bribery and corruption. Uh, started with Petrobras, then moving to Odebrecht, but it's moving out to other areas of investigation as well. So he uh, has some really interesting statistics and what it might mean for uh, certainly lawyers and corporations and compliance officers going forward. He also talks about the rise in compliance, uh, the doing compliance in uh, Brazilian corporations and what U.S. corporations need to do in response uh, to this. So I'm really proud to uh, have Carlos as my first guest for the international uh, edition of the uh, FCPA Compliance Report. Also, Jay, I'm speaking next week at the Third Party Oversight and Risk Management Conference in New York, put on by Financial Research Associates and Compliance Week. I'm talking about ROI on uh, third party risk management. Uh, and then uh, in two weeks, I am speaking with um, Roy Snell in uh, Prague at the uh, SCCE Europe. Compliance and Ethics Institute, and I'm talking about the use of social media and a best practices compliance program. So I'm very excited to be speaking at the uh, ECEI for the first time and uh, looking forward to sharing the stage uh, with Roy. Well, I'm just going to be staying home and, and, uh, you know, hoping that you call me to to get on a podcast again. That's uh, you you got a, a busy week ahead of you. Well, uh, speaking of busy weeks, uh, what will be in the Jay Rosen weekend report for the day after St. Patrick's Day? Um, uh, we're we're going to talk about culture this week. It culture? Just, uh, yeah. So uh, it just seems, uh, you know, with, with what we discussed today and what I've been, you know, thinking about during the week. Uh, so culture will be uh, on the docket. A couple of things I wanted to mention if anybody hasn't been following your um, series this week, um, you've done a great uh, series of um, interviews with uh, our friend Candace Tall, who's based up in the um, Bay Area. And uh, if anybody didn't really know about uh, deep level due diligence, um, please take a look at Tom and Candace's uh blog post from this week. It's really illuminating things. And also, um, even though I'm not traveling, um, my colleague Eric Feldman from um, Affiliated Monitors will also be in Prague for the SCC event. So uh, I'm sure he'll have a chance to see you and Roy, and uh, maybe he can even uh, do a, a, a stop and chat while you're recording. 
Um, and then uh, I, I think that pretty much uh, ties it up for the week. So, uh, you know, Jay, I, know I for, forgot to mention that uh, next week also uh, Everything Compliance, Episode 9, will uh, premiere. It is the Department of Justice Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs, Part 2. And it will feature yourself and Jonathan Armstrong with uh, your thoughts on the evaluation. So that goes up, uh, goes live next Thursday. Perfect. Uh, so, uh, everyone, uh, I think we ran a little bit long today, but we had a lot of uh, good things to speak about. So uh, closing off the spring break and St. Patty's Day edition, we'd like to thank you, as always, for spending your time with us and discussing the FCPA week that was. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to This Week in FCPA. As I mentioned in the opening, I have an exciting new podcast I'm premiering next week. I will have an international edition where I will have an international commentator or compliance practitioner. First up, Carlos Ayers to talk about the continuing fallout from the Petrobras Odebrecht case, the compliance solution being implemented by many Brazilian companies, and finally, the historic joining of investigations and prosecutions across Latin America by prosecutors in the anti-corruption space. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us as it would help our rankings and help get the word out about this unique weekly review of all things ethics and compliance. If you have any questions, please email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.